I believe with all my heart that because God loves us, there are some particularized challenges that He will deliver to each of us. He will customize the curriculum for each of us to teach us the things we most need to know. Christ on the cross gave out that cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That cry on the cross is an indication that the very best of our Father's children found the trial so real, the test so exquisite and so severe, that he cried out, not in doubt of his Father, but wondering why at that moment of supreme agony he felt so alone. We too at times may wonder if we have been forgotten and forsaken. Hopefully, we will do as the Master did and acknowledge that God is still there and never doubt that reality, even though we may wonder why we are called upon to undergo some experience. We too may at times, if we're not careful, try to pray away what seems like an impending tragedy, but which is in reality an opportunity. And we must do as Jesus did in that respect too. Preface our prayer by saying, if it's possible, let the cup pass from us. But bow in a sense of surrender to our Father in Heaven's wisdom, because at times, He will not be able to let us pass by that trial or that challenge. Because if it were allowed to happen, everything that had gone on up to that moment would be wiped out. We have a Father who loves us specifically and gives us things to do. And because He loves us, will cause us at times to have our souls stretched and to be fitted for a better world by coping with life in this world. May God bless us with that kind of commitment. agency was purchased with the price of Christ's suffering. The power of Christ's atonement overcomes the effect of sin on the condition of wholehearted repentance. Through and by the Savior's universal and infinite atonement, all have been redeemed from the fall and have become free forever to act for themselves. Beautiful. By yearning to use the gift of agency to make right decisions, you will increase your spiritual lift and altitude. God the Father gave His Son, and Jesus Christ gave us the Atonement, the greatest of all gifts and all giving. They somehow felt all the pain and sorrow of sin that would fall on all of us and everyone else that would ever live. I testify that what Paul said is true, and I bear you testimony that as you accept that gift given through infinite sacrifice, it now brings joy to the giver. Jesus taught, I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. If that warms you, as it does me, you may well want to give a gift to the Savior. 
Others did at his birth. Knowing what we do, how much more do we want to give him something? But he seems to have everything. Well, not quite. He doesn't have you with him again forever. Not yet. I hope you are touched by the feelings of his heart enough to sense how much he wants to know you are coming home to him. You can't give that gift to him in one day or one Christmas, but you could show him today that you are on the way. You could pray. You could read a page of scripture. You could keep a commandment. My ward's priesthood quorum leader announced that the following week, a man from our neighborhood would be attending our services for the first time in more than 50 years. The following week, the last Sunday of March, this man, Jerry, joined us for priesthood meeting. I instantly took to him. He carried an air of understated elegance and stood and introduced himself in a soft, plain-spoken voice. When the meeting adjourned, I stepped into the hallway for a couple minutes. Sunday school, our next meeting, was held in that same room. When I returned, there was an open seat next to Jerry, so I took it and extended my hand. When the class ended, people began filing to the chapel for sacrament meeting, but Jerry remained slumped in his chair, staring at the floor. I stayed there with him. Everything all right? He blinked a couple times, formulating a thought. That discussion went over my head. Everyone here knows so much about the gospel, and I know so little. I feel like I've wasted my life. I should never have come back. And then, like a lightning flash, a thought burst into my mind. When you get home today, I want you to open to Matthew 20. There's a parable there about laborers in the vineyard. The Lord calls some workers early, some a little later, some later, and then later still, and some at the last hour of the day. Uh, but if they go to work for him, he pays them all the same wage. The message is that it's never too late for us to respond to God. In his eyes, we're never too late. Jerry's brow softened a little. I like the sound of that. Well, I like it too, and I believe it's true. So today, after you get home, read that parable. And then the next time we're here at church, I want you to tell me what your impressions were as you read it. Yeah, okay, he pledged. I can do that. The following week, it was general conference. One of the talks that weekend struck me with particular force. It was Elder Jeffrey R. Hollins, and it was titled, The Laborers in the Vineyard. Elder Holland expounded on that parable from Matthew 20, and then expressed this beautiful thought. I do not know who in this vast audience today may need to hear the message of forgiveness inherent in this parable. But however late you think you are, however many chances you think you've missed, however many mistakes you feel you've made, or talents you think you don't have, or distance from home and family and God you feel you have traveled, I testify that you have not traveled beyond the reach of divine love. It is not possible for you to sink lower than the infinite light of Christ's atonement shines. The Sunday after General Conference, back at our ward building, Jerry found me. Hey, did you hear Elder Holland? He asked. He spoke about that parable. It was a message Jerry felt intended directly for him. 
he became a vital member of our ward, beloved of the regulars, a minister to those in the margins, and a pilgrim to temples in several Western states. If you're disheartened about all the spiritual experiences you feel you don't have, then I would say to you what the Lord once communicated to my friend Jerry, which is that in God's eyes, you're probably doing a lot better than you think you are. People of this nation will set aside their usual labors and celebrate Thanksgiving Day. Gratitude is a mark of a noble soul and a refined character. We like to be around those who are grateful. They make others feel better about themselves. They tend to be more humble, more joyful, more likable. Gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues, but the parent of all others. At this time, I suggest a simple three-word formula. Think to thank, which provides the pattern for personal happiness. It's interesting how gratitude works. We think we are giving back to the Lord by being grateful, but instead, the Lord blesses us still more for being grateful. Whether we are right in the middle of a global pandemic, experiencing devastating loss and grief, or we are experiencing the joyful moments of life, we must never forget to express gratitude. We have so much for which we are grateful. Family, friends, food, freedom, faith, all of which come to us from a loving Father in heaven. Echo in your heart this prayerful plea recorded in the Book of Mormon. Take upon you the name of Christ. Humble yourselves and worship God in whatsoever place ye may be in. Live in thanksgiving daily for the many mercies and blessings which he doth bestow upon you. God bless you always. What Washington was above all was a leader. He was a man whom some would follow through hell. And he never forgot what the fight was about. He never forgot what the cause was about, the glorious cause of America, as they called it. It was a long, bloody, costly war. And as it wore on in the year 1776, we suffered one defeat after another at Brooklyn, a huge battle, and we were soundly defeated. But then in a miraculous escape, we got back across the East River and were saved. The army was totally demoralized. They'd been defeated. They were soaking wet, they were cold, they were hungry, they were down to only a few thousand men. The stories of our troops leaving bloody footprints in the snow because they were in bare feet, those stories are true, that's not mythology. Well, Washington took stock, just as the British Army was taking stock of what the situation was, and most every officer and all the politicians, and most everybody concluded that the war was over and we had lost. It was the only rational conclusion one could come to. There wasn't a chance. So Washington did what you sometimes have to do when everything's lost and all hope's gone. He attacked. They went up the river Christmas night. He had the nerve, the courage, the faith in the cause to carry the war once more to the enemy. And they marched nine miles back down the river on the eastern side. It was very cold. What the wind chill factor must have been can only be imagined. 
They struck at Trenton the next morning. It was a fierce house-to-house savage battle, small in scale. And it was all over in about 45 minutes, and we won. For the first time, we defeated the enemy at their game, war. This was a small engagement, but its consequences were enormous, beyond reckoning. It transformed the attitude of the army and of much of the country toward the war. And in that, it was a pivotal turning point. One of the clearest of all lessons of history, it seems to me, is that there's no such thing as the foreseeable future. But we can know about the years that preceded us. We can know about the people who preceded us. And I have to say, if we love our country, the blessings of freedom, the blessings of a society that welcomes free speech, freedom of religion, and most important of all, freedom to think for ourselves. If we like that blessing, then surely we ought to know how it came to be. Several years ago, I heard Elder Gerald Lund of the 70 describe a magazine article about a school that taught people how to rock climb. The article discusses the concept of belaying, the fail-safe system that protects climbers. One climber gets into a safe position, fastens the rope securely in a fixed position, then calls to his companion, you're on belay, meaning I've got you. The director of the school, a Mr. Zenkush, described his experience with belaying. Now, quoting from the article, Belaying has brought Zen Kush his best and worst moments in climbing. Zen Kush once fell from a high precipice, yanking out three mechanical supports and pulling his belayer off a ledge. He was stopped upside down, 10 feet from the ground, when his spread-eagled belayer arrested the fall with the strength of his outstretched arms. Don saved my life, says Zen Kush. How do you respond to a guy like that? Give him a used climbing rope for Christmas? No, you remember him. You just always remember him. Gordon B. Hinckley told us recently, no member of this church must ever forget the terrible price paid by our Redeemer who gave his life that all men might live. The agony of Gethsemane, the bitter mockery of his trial, the vicious crown of thorns tearing at his flesh, the blood cry of the mob before Pilate, the lonely burden of his heavy walk along the way to Calvary, the terrifying pain as great nails pierced his hands and feet. We cannot forget that. We must never forget it. For here, our Savior, our Redeemer, the Son of God, gave himself a vicarious sacrifice for each of us. I believe that one way the best way, and possibly the only way to meet President Hinckley's challenge is to focus all we do on the atonement of Christ. This is the very root of Christian doctrine. May we always remember him and the price he paid to win our souls. acquaintance of mine left a small southern Utah town to travel east. He'd never traveled much beyond his little hometown and certainly had never ridden a train. 
But his older sister and brother-in-law, now living in the east, needed him under some special circumstances, and his parents agreed to free him from the farm work in order to go. They drove him to Salt Lake City and put him onto the train. New Levi's, not so new boots, very frightened and 18 years old. There was one major problem, and it terrified him. He had to change trains in Chicago. His sister had written, carefully outlining when the incoming train would arrive and how and when and where he was to catch the outgoing line, but he was still terrified. And then his humble, plain, sun-scarred little father did something no one in this room should ever forget. He said, Son, wherever you go in this church, there will be somebody to stand by you. And with that, he stuffed into the pocket of his calico shirt the name of a bishop. If the boy had troubles or became discouraged or afraid, he was to call the bishop and ask for help. Well, the train ride progressed rather uneventfully until it pulled into Chicago. And even then, the young man did pretty well at collecting his luggage and making it to the nearby hotel room, which had been prearranged by his brother-in-law. But then the clock began to tick, and night began to fall, and faith began to fail. Could he find his way back to the station? Could he find the right track? Could he find the right train? What if it was late? What if he was late? What if he lost his ticket? What if? What if? What if? That big, raw-boned 18-year-old flew across the room, nearly pulled the telephone off the wall, and fighting back tears and troubles, called this bishop. Alas, the bishop was not home, but aha, the bishop's wife was. She spoke long enough to reassure him that absolutely nothing could go wrong that night. He was, after all, safe in the room, and what he needed more than anything was a night's rest. Then she said, If tomorrow morning you're still concerned, follow these directions, you can be with our family and other ward members until train time. We will make sure you get safely on your way. She then carefully spelled out the directions, had him repeat them back, and suggested a time for him to come. With slightly more peace in his heart, he knelt by his bed as he had every night of his 18 years. And he waited for morning to come. At the appointed hour next, he set out. A long walk, then catch a bus. Watch for the stop. Here it is. Let me out of this bus. It worked, just like she said it would. Then his world crumbled, crumbled before his very eyes. He stepped out of that bus, only to see the longest stretch of shrubbery and grass he had ever seen in his entire life. She had said something about a park, but he thought a park was a dusty acre in southern Utah with a netless tennis court in the corner. Here he stood, looking in vain at the vast expanse of Lincoln Park, with not a friendly face anywhere in sight. It struck him that he had no idea where he was or what combination of connections with who knows what number of buses would be necessary to get him back to the station. Suddenly he felt more alone and overwhelmed than any moment in his life. As the tears welled up in his eyes, he despised himself for feeling so afraid. But he was, and the tears would not stop. But as he stepped away from the noise, fighting to control his emotions, he thought he heard something hauntingly familiar in the distance. He moved cautiously in the direction of the sound. First he walked, then he walked quickly. The sound was stronger and firmer, and certainly it was familiar. Then he started to smile, 
a smile which erupted into an audible laugh, and he started to run. He ran as fast as those cowboy boots would carry him. Though hard to you, this journey may appear. Grace shall be as your day. The sounds were crystal clear, and he was now weeping newer, different tears. For there, over a little rise, huddled around a few picnic tables and bundles of food, was the bishop and his wife and their children and most of the families of this little ward. The sound, a slightly off-key, a cappella rendition of lines that even a boy from southern Utah would recognize. Gird up your loins, fresh courage take. Our God will never us forsake. And soon we'll have this tale to tell. All is well. All is well. This is Larry Dahl's story. When I was five years old, two friends and I made ourselves a hideout by tunneling into a haystack alongside a new barn in the neighbor's yard. One day, we decided to roast some hot dogs. You can imagine the rest of the story. The fire quickly got away from us. We scampered through the tunnel to safety, and all of us ran to our separate homes. Within minutes, I heard the wail of the town fire truck getting closer and closer, but it was too late. The haystack and the new barn were quickly consumed. Somehow, my parents suspected I may have had something to do with the fire since they knew of our hideout. As I heard their footsteps on the stairs, I thought my pounding heart would jump right out of my body. When they entered the bedroom, and witnessed my fearful and tearful face, their suspicions were confirmed. My father asked me to tell them what had happened. Through broken-hearted sobs, I recited the events of the afternoon. He quietly left the room while my mother stayed and cried with me. I learned years later that my father paid our neighbor for the hay and the barn. But from the day it happened to the day of his death, 45 years later, my father never mentioned the event to me. Truly it was as if he did not remember it. The principle that this story illustrates is simple but often ignored by those who need to forgive. True forgiveness implies not mentioning past sins, errors, or mistakes once they've been properly dealt with. In five-year-old Larry's case, he needed to express sorrow and to confess and accept responsibility for his careless and damaging act. But once that was accomplished, he could do little more as a kindergartner to restore the burned-down barn. And so a loving father paid the price for Larry's mistake and mentioned it to him no more. When uh, I was coming home from school one day, I was sitting in the chair and reading the, the newspaper, and my daughter Sarah, then seven years old, came in and said, Dad, can I have a bike? I'm the only kid on the block who doesn't have a bike. And I didn't have enough money to buy her a bike, so I stalled her. I said, sure, Sarah. She said, how, when? So I said, you save all your pennies, and pretty soon you'll have enough for a bike. She went away. A couple of weeks later, as I was 
sitting in the same chair. I was aware of uh, Sarah doing something for her mother and getting paid. She went in the other room. I heard clink, clink. I said, Sarah, what are you doing? And she came out. She had a little jar all cleaned up with a slit cut in the lid and a bunch of pennies in the bottom. She looked at me and she said, you promised me that if I saved all my pennies, pretty soon I'd have enough for a bike. And Daddy, I've saved every single one. My heart melted. Because I love her, I said, well, let's go downtown and look at bikes. So we did. We went down. We went to every store in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And finally we found it, the perfect bicycle. And she got up on that bike and she was just thrilled and she saw then the price tag and she reached down and she turned it over and she saw how much it cost and her face fell. She started to cry and she said, oh dad, I'll never have enough for a bicycle. How much do you have? She said, 61 cents. I'll tell you what, you give me everything you've got, the whole 61 cents and a hug and a kiss, and that bike is yours. She gave me a hug and a kiss, she gave me 61 cents, and then I had to drive home very slowly because she wouldn't get off the bike. She rode home, and as I drove along slowly beside her, it occurred to me that that was a parable for the atonement of Christ. We all want something desperately. In a bicycle. We want the celestial kingdom. We want to be with our Father in heaven. And no matter how hard we try, we come up short. It's at that point, the sweetness of the gospel covenant comes to our taste. And the Savior proposes, I'll tell you what, all right, you're not perfect. How much do you have? Give me all there is, and I'll pay the rest. Enter into a personal relationship with me, and I will do what remains undone. Many of us are trying to save ourselves and holding the atonement of Christ at arm's distance and saying, when I've done it, when I've perfected myself, when I've made myself more worthy, then I'll be worthy of the atonement. Then I will allow him in. And we cannot do it. We must do all that we can. But having done all, then we must trust in his redeeming blood and in his ability to do for us what we cannot yet accomplish. If we hold the belief that God will shield us from tribulation because of our obedience and then adversity strikes, we may be tempted to accuse God of not hearing our prayers, or worse, that he doesn't honor his promises. Obedience to God is not insurance against pain and sadness. Challenges have always been part of God's great plan to test our faith and to stimulate in us growth, humility, and compassion. Heartache and struggle were divinely designed to stretch us to where we have nowhere else to turn but to God. 
Christ's mission was never intended to prevent broken hearts, but to heal broken hearts. He came to wipe away our tears, not to ensure that we would never weep. Christ declared, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He didn't say, You must overcome the world, or that he overcame the world just for the weak ones who weren't smart enough or strong enough to do it on their own. The Savior said, I have overcome the world. Somewhere between the bottom of the climb and the summit is the answer to the mystery, why we climb. Since the beginning, one of the reasons we don't just admire mountains but feel so compelled to climb and conquer them is because of the fundamental and foundational truth that we, as eternally progressing beings, are predisposed to take on challenges. Even hard and uphill journeys, like life for instance, can't help but foster and develop both our progress and a priceless byproduct of that effort, which is faith. Mountains tempt us, they terrify us, they test us, and they try us. At the same time, they stir our souls, they inspire us, and they have this transformative ability to rekindle hope, to steal our resolve, and to hone our faith step by courageous step. It is only when we push ourselves beyond our perceived capacity that we discover within ourselves the courage, fortitude, and faith to continue the journey. Your mountain is indeed waiting and ready to tackle. And as you take it on, you will find that inner and yet to be discovered strength by combining the formidable tandem of courage and faith. Several years ago, on a cold winter night, some of our extended family volunteered to serve dinner in a homeless shelter during the Christmas season. At first, some of the younger children were a bit frightened by the sights and smells and sounds of the inner city shelter. They had never been so close to such distress before. But in time, a, a little Christmas miracle took place. As we served the hot meal, we all began to interact with the homeless residents. We exchanged smiles, laughter, and small talk. Then the singing started. No one really remembers who began to sing first. Perhaps one of the residents or one of the children. But before long, everyone was singing Christmas carols. The room filled with the sweet spirit of Christmas. It became like a great party, almost a family reunion. They were no longer strangers, but brothers and sisters, children of the same God. It was powerful, personal, and poignant, a night never to be forgotten. No heavenly angels sang that night at the shelter, at least not in the literal sense, but heaven seemed close. We felt love, love for God, each other, and all humanity. As the evening ended and we stepped back into the cold night, we each felt the joy and meaning of Christmas more deeply. The stars shone a little brighter, and we all felt a little closer to a few of our fellow passengers on life's common journey.
If you are fearful, whatever your fears may be, I invite you to turn to the Lord and trust in His love, His goodness, His grace. It is mightier than any force on earth. His loving words to the early saints are also His words to you. Fear not, little children, for you are mine, and I have overcome the world. Something that stands out to me in the account of the Savior's birth is that on four separate occasions, an angel appears with the message, Fear not. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias with news that his wife would bear a son, the forerunner of the Messiah, he said, Fear not, for thy prayer is heard. Later, the same angel visited beautiful and fair Mary to tell her that she would be the mother of the Son of God, assuring her with similar words, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Shortly thereafter, an angel appeared to Joseph the carpenter in a dream and said, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. And then on that holy night, as all eternity watched in reverent silence, the angel came upon humble shepherds keeping watch over their flock. The shepherds, who were sore afraid, heard the angel proclaim, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. So much of what happened during those pivotal moments in the Nativity narrative depended upon the courage of people like Zacharias, Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds. God had a monumental task for each of them. Their lives were about to change forever. Imagine if they had let fear overcome them. What if they had pulled back, doubted, and failed to do what God needed them to do? I don't know what your fears are. You may have fears about your family, like Zacharias, who feared that he would never have children. Or maybe your fear isn't that you won't have children, but that you will have children whom you have to raise in a toxic world, increasingly hostile to families. Like Mary, you may have an assignment or responsibility that seems far beyond your abilities. Like Joseph, you may fear getting married or that you will never get married. Like the shepherds, you may be sore afraid when your peaceful, simple life is disrupted because God has plans for you that are bigger than what you had for yourself. Life presents endless opportunities to fear. The Lord's message to you today is the same message He sent through His angels so long ago. Fear not. He can say that because He knows more than we do. He sees what we cannot see. He knows what's coming, and in the eternal scheme of things, it's not as bad as we may think. He knows that we can handle it with His help because He knows how to strengthen and succor us. Satan wants us to give in to fear. God wants us to hold on to hope. 
I testify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and because unto us was born that day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, we have no need to fear, for he has indeed brought with him peace on earth and goodwill toward men.